Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Reed Forgrave. He is the author of Love Zach, Small Town Football and the Life and Death of an American Boy, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books. Reed, welcome to the program. Ah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I think I told you this before, but my family all moved to Raleigh a year ago. So my sister and her family and mom and stepdad live there. And uh, once this COVID thing ends, uh, planning to pop by. Your uh, bookstore looks awesome. Yeah, we look forward to having you here. Reed. Thank you uh, very much. It's an honor to have you here. And for our listeners, um, this is the second time that Reed and I have done this interview. <laughs> The first time it, it didn't get recorded so um this will be fun maybe we'll maybe some of the answers will be changed um you never know um they're all they're all canned they're all canned anyway right yeah right um I, i'm just kidding yeah well hey you know you never know some folks just read from a straight script so um <laughs> Reed, when we first uh, spoke, football season was about to start, and now um, we are firmly, I think, uh, in week four of the season as Thursday night football was last night. Um, I will ask you about the repercussions of our obsession uh, as a country with football later, but for now, Reed, I want to ask a pretty large and open-ended question, which is what does football mean to America? Everything. As much as a sport can mean to a country, that's what football means to America. Um, I'm, I am, by the way, one. I'm torn about this, and I know we'll get into this later. I, I'm someone who's torn about football, but mm. I am obsessed enough with football myself that mm. I stayed up until you know 10:30 last night and watched Jacksonville Jaguars, Cincinnati Bengals, which is like two terrible teams. <laughs> and, and, and like, uh, so, so like I am part of this, what I would refer to as a football industrial complex in this country. Um, for a long time, for a century, people have referred to baseball as the American pastime. Mm. Uh, football has long since surpassed baseball. In my book, I, I, I refer to this kind of one seminal moment where, you know, 1958 NFL championship game, uh, when, when I think you can kind of point to this is when football passed baseball. But football is so more than a pastime. Uh, football is a sporting religion. Uh, you talk about, so I have two kids, uh, five-year-old and nine-year-old. And when I'm out playing baseball uh, with my kids, it is very much passing the time. But when you're teaching your kids football, watching it, playing it, coaching it. Um, God, I don't, I don't think I'll be coaching football anywhere in my future. Um, mm -hmm. But there's so much more to it. There's uh, the author, Steve Allman wrote a really great book called, uh, you know, against football, a reluctant fans, football fans manifesto. Uh, and it was basically about how he had had this uh, gone from a, being a big football fan to having all these moral reservations about it. And he referred to like, these these tor the, the, baseball has like hey let's go out and have a catch uh, that that feeling between father and son, mm -hmm. whereas football it's like, it like more gets at that those the tortured parts of those relationships the I'm trying to create a man and you know men are supposed to be tough but at the same time you don't want your kid to get hurt I think football is is much more complicated the the way that we feel about this sport uh, as a country and then also really if, if you look at the rise of America 
as a military power and as a, you know, economic superpower in the world. Football, I think not just mirrors its rise. Like football came about as a sport right after the Civil War. I don't think that's coincidental. It's a time when, you know, men were off the battlefield and had to prove themselves in a different way, uh, prove their manly mettle. Uh, but it also, you know, not just does football mirror America's rise, but I think it is part and parcel of it. It, it. It's sort of a cause of it. You see in like 1905, football has this crisis where three dozen college football players died on the field that year. Like you think fo- football's brutal now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dial it back 120 years, uh, even more so. And mm-hmm. President Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, had a bunch of college presidents uh, to the White House and said, not he did not say we need to ban football uh he said we need to make football palatable uh a little bit more safe uh palatable to the the civilized american citizen because this sport needs to be saved because this sport is you know it helps create this strong military uh it helps create this strong corporate culture there are all these analogies between football the military football and corporate culture um, that uh, that Roosevelt very much saw. By the way, that that meeting at the White House, that summit that he held, ends up uh, uh, turning into uh, the organization that became the NCAA, uh, National Collegiate Athletic Association. So it all kind of starts from this concern about football. Thank you, Reed. And speaking of fathers and sons, uh, in your book we have Miles Easter, football coach, hunter, father. Tell us what kind of father. Miles Easter is and what kind of priorities he has imparted upon his children. You know, Miles Easter is, I think, the most tortured character in this book. Um, I think he's a great dad. He's not the type of dad that I am. He's not the type of person that I am. And yet I identify with him as much as anyone in this book. Uh, He had three sons, he and his wife, Brenda. Uh, Zach was the middle son. And Miles Easter's family has been in this part of rural Iowa since uh, right, bef- right, right before the Civil War. They came to emigrated to Iowa. His like seven generations before emigrated to Iowa in a horse and buggy. Um, I promise I'm bringing this around to the type of dad that, that Miles is. But for generations, this, this is family that, that cultivated the land, that lived off the land, that lived a little bit rough and hard. Um, uh, and tough. And, and there's a stoicism. There's like a Midwest stoicism that's just ingrained in this family. And when Miles Easter was growing up in the 1970s, uh, the they weren't living. Farming has very much changed, right? You know this. It's like very much corporate farming. He still uh, grew up as a farm kid, uh, grew up raising animals. But by the time that he became a father, uh, that sort of part of his family's way of life. It's sort of gone by the wayside. He has a brother who still farms, uh, but farming very much different. But the way that Miles Easter saw the, how to be a father, how to turn a boy into a man was through those two things that you mentioned, through football and through hunting. These were definitions of what it means to be an Easter man. So Miles Easter played college football, division one college football. He coached for the uh, small college uh, at, in the small town uh, in Iowa where he lives. 
And then when his sons became of age, he started coaching them. He was a defensive coordinator for their football team. He's very much a rub dirt in it and take a lap type of guy. Uh, His type of football, Tatum, for the Oakland Raiders, who was known as the assassin, uh, who once paralyzed a player on the field. Uh, This is very much, I know like for, for sort of, the East Coast liberal people, they can look at that and be like, oh, what a, what a terrible dad. I, I think for, for more red state folks, for people in the center of the country, you can look at this and be like, that's what a man's supposed to be. And I think Miles very much believed in the power of football. Um, and he's very much questioned it over the past decade or so. Uh, but, but I think the one thing that he, I mean, there are two things that I think are you know, you know the, the ways that he is able to move forward in life. One is the timing of this. Zach graduated from call, uh, from high school in 2010, so he's playing football, high school football, 2006 to 2009. Um, this was an age, sort of an age of innocence, uh, when it when it came to head injuries. We didn't, we thought about him like he just got dinged up. Um, mm-hmm. So I think he is able to sort of compartmentalize his guilt. Because he didn't know, we didn't know as a society. And the second part that helps Miles, I believe, you know, go forward. You never get past something like this, but you go forward. Um, is the fact that Zach left behind all these journals, all these writings that both explain his suicide, explain what he was going through, mm-hmm. but then gave his family, gave his friends, gave anyone who knew him a charge. That charge being, go spread my story. So other people don't suffer the way I did. Um, I know the idea of like talking about like, it's all about awareness. I know, I know that can seem a little cliche and cheesy, but I think that's like very true uh, when it comes to concussions and football and CTE and mental health. Uh, half the battle is just talking about it, being smart about it. And I think, especially Brenda, Miles's, uh, Miles's wife, uh, Zach's mom and Zach's girlfriend, Allie, who are both central characters in this book, uh, they very much took that charge and continue to run with it to this day. Um, with Miles, it's, again, more complicated. He's more stoic. He's not the type to be like, I'm going to therapy. Uh, his therapy is grabs his hunting rifle and his two dogs and a six-pack of beer and goes out in the woods behind their house and you know sees what kind of animals he can find back there. Um, so I think processing it just from that sort of processing his, his son's death and the way that it happened is mm-hmm. even more difficult when you come from that, what I would refer to as traditionally masculine background. Um, and I do think one of the, I'm sorry, this is my last point. I can, I, I can ramble, but like the, 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 one of the central points of this book is trying to figure out where that line is between traditional masculinity and toxic masculinity and I think Miles walks that line and falls on the traditional side. Um, and I think in 2021, we can look at all forms of that traditional masculinity as toxic. And as a dad, I just don't think that's true. I think there is something about toughing it out, um, that traditionally masculine view of the world that is powerful, um, that that uh, helps create the American man. That said, certainly shouldn't go too far and it's something that i very much have wrestled with myself as a father right thank you um i wonder if jack tatum is any relation to a uh, ray voodoo tatum um for, <laughs> for our friends who have watched friday night lights um 
Well, listeners, this is a good time to mention the Crooks Corner Book Prize. Have you heard about the Crooks Corner Book Prize, what Pulitzer Prize winner Charles Frazier calls the coolest book prize in the country? Awarded annually for the best debut novel set in the American South, this $5,000 prize is intended to encourage emerging writers, whether published by established publishing houses, small independent publishers, or self-published authors. This year's winner will be chosen by best-selling novelist and poet Ron Rash and will be announced in January 2022. For more information, visit www.crookscornerbookprize.com. Reed, um, we've spoken about um, Miles and, and Zach, and um, for our listeners who haven't yet read this book, it opens with a scene where uh, Zach um, has a gun, is about to shoot himself. He's suffering from CTE and the effects of concussions. Um, early in your book, you write, you weren't a real member of the Easter family if you didn't love guns. Uh, do you, Reed Forgrave, believe that men like Miles Easter should have guns and should be teaching his very young children about guns? I believe Miles took his son Zach hunting for the first time when he was five years old. Yeah, took him out. Didn't have, a, didn't give him a gun, but he was like, mm-hmm. you know, walking the the, the fields with him. Um, and by the way, when he was five years old, they were out in the farm field, I think, hunting pheasant. And they're on the very far end of the field, and it's a cold, rainy day, like it always is in November in Iowa. And Zach started whining, and uh, he's like, "Carry me, Dad." And his dad said, "Hell no, I'm not carrying you. Uh, <laughs> you gotta, you can just stay out here if you're not coming." That was like. And Zach bucked up and, and, and walked on and, and then he fell in love with hunting. It was one of the joys of his life was going hunting with his dad and his brothers. Um, that was like one of those early lessons that he was imparting on his son, that traditional slash, if you want to call it toxic view of masculinity. Should Miles Easter have guns? Um, boy, that's a complicated question. Yes, I think he should. I think he is actually someone who is, and look, I know that Zach, stole his father's gun when his father knew his son was going through a mental health crisis and had hidden all the guns, taken them out of the house. Uh, Zach happened to know uh, his, his father sent the guns to his brother's house. And then they were, for some reason, got back in the family truck and Zach took it out of the back of the family truck. So look, it's tragic, but he was someone who was big into hunter safety. Uh, he, he was someone who taught that to his boys. Uh, I don't think the question is so much like, should Miles Easter be someone uh, who has guns? I think in, in, in modern day America, a country that loves guns, guns way too much to a fault. But like in the context of this country, he is a safe gun user. I mean, the question is when Zach is going through this, how does a parent uh, protect their kid from themselves. If, 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 if someone wants to die by suicide and you have guns around, that makes it a whole lot easier. There are certainly other ways that, that someone can kill themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but we all know that guns make that a, a decision that can happen just like this. Uh, Zach's parents and his girlfriend believe that Zach had planned all this out. There was a, the book you, you mentioned opens on the scene, this, mm-hmm. You know, it's like a trigger warning of a scene, right? It's harrowing. And it really, like, illustrates the the depth of, of love and compassion between father and son, but also this terrible state that Zach was in. Uh, it, 
this doesn't this this isn't a spoiler alert he does not uh commit suicide uh that time but he does five weeks later um so that was the moment where his parents eyes were fully open to oh my god our son is going through the crisis of crises um this is you know can't get more concerning than a very public suicide attempt where cops are called and all the friends and all this stuff um but uh um he, he he did die by suicide five weeks later and it's like how how do you once you know that your kid is in this situation how do you protect them from themselves themselves and if you have guns around it simply makes it easier right mm -hmm. so i think it's complicated i think there's all sorts of legislation out there red flag legislation um all sorts of like mental health and can you own guns if you do but in a country that loves guns like america does in a way like miles easter is sort of I don't want to call him the model gun owner, but he's something along those lines, even though this ended in tragedy and guns are at least partly to blame, but Zach very much had this planned out. Uh, that was the point that I was, that I was getting back to. Uh, there were five weeks between this attempt and the completed suicide and his girlfriend and his family in retrospect, look back at those five weeks and they're like, Zach was tying things up in his life. Uh, and one way or another, he was going to go through with this. Right. Uh, thank you, Reed. Um, speaking of Zach Easter, Zach was a football player when he was in school, through high school, suffered these injuries that obviously um, led to the end of his life, uh, his desire to take his own life. Was Zach ever a good enough football player to make it? to even college or perhaps the NFL potentially college. I think he might've had like a small college in his future, but he, mm -hmm. here's the thing. Like his dad was a division one player. Mm -hmm. uh, his brother played at, uh, I think it's like division one, double a uh, university of Minnesota, Mankato, and then transferred to a small college in Des Moines, played football at both of them. His brother was in their high school football hall of fame. The chance of even like your average star high school football player going on, to the NFL is like infinitesimal, right? There's a million high school boys who play football uh, every year. How many of those get drafted into the NFL every year? Like 180, 200, something like that. Uh, so your chances of making the NFL, even if you're really, really good, uh, are incredibly small. Chances of getting a college scholarship, a little bit better, but still not great. Uh, here's the deal with Zach. His father and his brother were both bigger than him. Uh, they had more. Zach was a talented athlete. He just wasn't talented in that football sort of way. He wasn't the speediest guy. He wasn't the biggest guy. But what he had that his father and his brother, uh, especially his older brother, who's, who, who was the, the best football player of all three boys, what they like looked up to with him, which ended up being Zach's downfall, was his mind, his football mind, the fact that he was a little bit crazy, a little bit unhinged out there on the field, that he would put the team before his own safety, which by the way, you know, 2021 maybe sounds a little bit crazy, but that's like, that's football. That's like uh, Vince Lombardi. That's what football coaches have always wanted. Someone who can just push it right up against the limits, maybe go a little bit further, uh, uh, to the point where they sort of can mentally dominate their opponent. Um, and we can look back on this and say, okay, that was, that was Zach's downfall that he 
threw his head into the play, that he wasn't worried so much about his own safety. And I think today in, in modern day football, where concussions are a huge issue, where CTE, you know, for the NFL, they don't love to talk about this stuff for obvious reasons, but they know this is an existential question for the sport long-term. I ultimately think football will survive um, and thrive, but I don't think it's a sure thing uh, depending where the science goes with concussions. Um, But uh, this was Zach's downfall that that he would hide his pain, that he would fight through his pain, that when he had a concussion, he'd say, I'm fine, coach, put me back in Uh, very much that, that Vince Lombardi, you know, the mind has to be tougher than the body type mentality that is a an admirable mentality to a point uh and when head injuries are involved when concussions are involved uh it becomes incredibly concerning Uh, there's no x-ray that can say you got a concussion and by the way one there are all these ways that we're trying to you know quote unquote solve this concussion crisis whether it's equipment or rule changes or scientific research which isn't going to the scientific research takes decades uh, before it can come up with solutions. But to me, the most important part is the the, the discussion, the, the culture around this. And even s- simply me sitting here calling them concussions is, is part of that old culture. Uh, these need to be called what they are, which is mild traumatic brain injuries. Mm-hmm. And if your parent, you know, if you're a parent of a 16 year old kid, and you're like, oh, your, your kid had a concussion in the game. Uh, he probably won't be able to play this weekend. You're like, okay, a concussion. He can rest and he'll be fine. If you say, hey, your kid had a mild traumatic brain injury in the game. That's like, whoa, we need to take this seriously. So that, that and I think that's the power of Zach's story, uh, ultimately. And that's Zach's legacy is making people talk about this in a real and honest and authentic way. Absolutely. Thank you, Reed. We will return to Zach Easter and football in a moment. But first, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor. Then I will be right back with Reed Fordgrave. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Reed Forgrave, author of Love, Zach, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books. For someone like Zach Easter, who we have said is probably never good enough to play football past high school, is the risk of this long-term damage worth it? I mean, we can look at that now and say, mm-hmm. obviously, 100% no. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me play a little bit of devil's advocate here. In Zach's writings, 
you know, he, he, so he left behind all these journals. This is like sort of like the primary source material for this book. All these journals, it's like, hey, you know, July 2nd, 2015, here's what I was doing this day. I went to a therapy appointment. I got lost in the way home. I'm really struggling, whatever. Uh, he also left behind this, I think, 39-page typewritten autobiography. Mm-hmm. And it's very clear in his writings that he blames football for his struggles. It's also very clear in his writings that until his dying day, he loved football. He considered this one of the biggest parts of his identity and and a positive part. He loved being, in his words, the toughest son of a bitch out there. Um, Is that crazy? Maybe. But I I, I think you talk with people. So I did a, I talked to the college class a couple weeks ago. Uh, about this book and in the class were two college football players uh not anyone no one special to the you know not not people who are going to be in the nfl someday not like people going to win a national championship uh regular college football players and they had some really compelling thoughts on this that like one of them his dad had played in the nfl and he's like i can see issues with my dad and his memory and my dad can see issues uh his knees are shot Uh, And he wouldn't trade in that time for anything. It was the best time of his life. Um, These young men felt the exact same. They know that that, that's the thing. It's like, now we know there is risk with football Uh, with Zach. I think, yes, you certainly knew there was risk. He might have bad knees. He could break his vertebrae like his older brother did in the football game. Like football is a violent sport, period. Uh, That's also, that's like part of the allure of it. I'd say, you know, the central part of the allure of, of football. But uh, this was something that Zach took so much pride in that he loved. I didn't play football. I was too small and I didn't have that, uh, uh, I could, that mentality that Zach had. So I would have been a terrible football player. Uh, I played baseball. Um, But I can see when I talked to all these ex football players, whether it's guys who just played through high school or guys who played in the NFL, they're like, yep, we know that it messed us up. We wouldn't trade it for the world. I know of a guy who was a college player, a really talented college player who told me he's in his forties now, very successful business career told me word for word. I'm probably going to, you know, kill myself someday. I can already have, I have, you know, I can remember having concussion issues. I remember, you know, playing an entire half and not even remembering it. I, I have memory issues. Uh, and he was okay with it. He's like, you know what? I, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Is that crazy? Is that like an addiction? Uh, yeah, I think that is, that is, that is insane. Uh, that, that we have gotten to a point that we accept that as a society, but that's very much, I think that just underscores how much football means to this country, to the quote unquote American man. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's like some easy answer to this. And I think, I really hope this book lives in the grays. If you love football, I hope you read Zach's story and you question your love for football. Just question it. Just examine it. If you hate football, like my mother, <laughs> <laughs> and see it as the, this violent, awful manifestation of toxic masculinity. I hope you read this book and you question this because this book, obviously, it's a cautionary tale. It talks about the risks of football. It also talks about the rewards of football, which I do believe are greater than any other sport. 
Thank you so much, Reed. Um, I want to talk for a moment about um, Zach's girlfriend and family and the access that they gave you um, to emails, um, text messages, etc., which seems like um, they did not put any restrictions on things that they let you see. Um, what does this kind of trust uh, mean to you that the family put in you to let you see all of these um, private messages? Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable. I've never had a family that is as open and as driven as they are. Uh, it's courageous. I think airing your family's dirty laundry, um, the, 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 the awful pain and tragedy that they've been through and being willing to put it out there for the greater good, mm -hmm. I do believe this is for the greater good, mm -hmm. takes courage. Um, and, and for me as a journalist, um, it gave me a deep sense of responsibility. I mean, I remember from the very first time I met with this family, I was on the phone with Brenda Easter. It was right before Christmas, 2015. Uh, I tracked her down. It was days after her son had died. I think it might've been the, the day after uh, his funeral. When we talked on the phone, I had seen his obituary, which was a very bluntly written obituary talking about what Zach had been through because of uh, all of his concussions. And they had me to their house and I was there after he died by suicide in their house with the mom, their dad, girlfriend, a couple family friends. I mean, this was so fresh that one of Zach's aunts was in the kitchen writing thank you cards to people who came to the funeral. That's how fresh this was. Mm -hmm. And first of all, from the top, I, I, I recognized, oh my gosh, this, this story is, there's so much more to it. There's so much gray and so much complexity and obviously so much tragedy but also there's there, there's a worthy story to be told this is this is more than a quick article about a newsworthy topic and a family's uh, sadness um and i explained to the family the power of your sons and your boyfriends and your brother's story is in you know the warts and all the power is in its sadness uh it's it, the power is not glossing over things and I think Brenda, especially, and Allie, his girlfriend, especially, just intuitively understood that from the beginning. Um, and if it weren't for Zach saying very bluntly in his writings, uh, saying, spread my story, uh, I'm not, I don't know how a family could ever get to that view, especially as quickly as they were able to get to it. Um, that's the power of the story. This wouldn't be, this wouldn't have been a story of GQ magazine, much less a book if it weren't for Zach leaving his own words uh, behind. So we can, he's sort of speaking to you from beyond the grave in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a spookiness and a poignancy to that. Um, that is incredibly powerful. So the fact that the family, they, they, there was one, literally one thing in the book that Brenda, I told her about shortly before it was published uh, I'm not going to tell you what that thing is, uh, but uh, there was one thing in the book that she objected to, something that was in the article that she said caused deep pain to her family, specifically mm -hmm. to Zach's father. And she asked if I could take it out of the book. And I said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, of, of course, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was like central to, uh, to the story. Um, but other than that, 
and there's awful, painful stuff in here. And, and Brenda did not love everything about the book. She didn't agree with everything about the book. Um, but she understands uh, its power. Um, the power of, of, of telling this, you know, telling about this family's pain. It's not just, uh, you know, sensationalizing a tragedy, but there's meaning to it. And uh, I think she's, she holds on to that as sort of Zach's legacy. In a way, it's like a way for her to keep him alive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you, Reed. Um, when I finished your book and I was talking about it at home uh, with my wife, Claire, um, she asked this question to me, so I'm going to turn it around on to you. Having written this book, knowing what you know, if your child asked you to play football, would you let them? Toughest question of them all, right? Um, I mean, I think there's an obvious answer. And the obvious answer is, in my opinion, doesn't matter because my wife says no, right? <laughs> but like, look, our our older kid who's nine uh, has zero interest in football. Uh, likes soccer, likes Legos, uh, starting to take to basketball. But like, it's not going to be uh, a question with him. With our five-year-old who the way that he's a little bit rambunctious and mischievous and, and, and joyous uh, reminds me a little bit of Zach. Um, he loves football. He loves all sports. He'll sit down and watch the Minnesota Vikings. I live in Minneapolis, watch them lose every single Sunday with me. Um, he, we just got him a football last, last week. Uh, he got, he recently got diagnosed to co- for COVID. So that was like my, my COVID gift for him is I'm gonna give you a, give you a football. He's fine by the way. Um, yeah. But uh, out of school for two weeks, which sucks. Mm-hmm. It's easy for me to say as a parent, no, of course not. Why would I risk it? Given his uh, lineage and DNA, he's obviously not going to be an NFL player or, or a college football player. What's the point? Um, it gets a little more, bit more complicated when he's 14 and all his friends are trying out and he's been watching football for a decade with his dad and then I become a total hypocrite if I'd be like, no kid, you can't, you can't play. Sorry. We're not going to let you try out for track and field instead. Uh, so I think it's a much more complicated question when it's in reality. Here's, here's one interesting part of this book that I think really leads to an answer here is there's a doctor in this book. There's a chapter that's mostly dedicated to this doctor, Zach's doctor, uh, concussion expert. He was a Navy doctor in Afghanistan and led a, it's called the Con- Concussion Restoration Center uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, as big of an issue as concussions are in football, just as big of an issue in the military the past 20 years with all these explosions and IEDs that happen. Soldiers survive these explosions, uh, but the, the blast waves can, can really have serious consequences as far as concussions. Uh, and they, they had this very successful program in Afghanistan, that this doctor has come back to Iowa and just last year uh, opened a concussion center in suburban Des Moines, right near where Zach lived. And Zach, in a way, sort of lives on in this concussion center because this doctor, I don't think there's anything he ultimately could have done for Zach, but it's terrible when a guy that you've treated six, seven, eight times, uh, you hear that he died by suicide because of concussions. Oh, brutal. Um, this doctor has a son, uh, a few years older than my oldest kid, and about a year and a half ago, this kid was, I think the kid was 12 or so, I was like, Dad, I want to play football. 
Um, dad's a football fan. Dr. Dr. Sean Spooner, big football fan, worked, has worked on the sidelines for the San Diego Chargers, played high school football himself um, for a really bad team in small town Iowa. Loved his time playing football. And this doctor was torn about it. He's like, do I wrap my kids in bubble wrap? Like you, obviously the risk in football is higher than any other sport, but you can get concussions in soccer. You can get concussions walking down the street and tripping, right? Next door neighbor's kid got a concussion that for years has affected her from getting into her car and hitting her head really hard. It's baked into football. I'm not going to pretend that that your risk of getting a concussion and riding a bike is the same as football, but these, these are things that happen. He, he was very much wrestling with this as a parent, and what he did was he talked with his kid honestly. He said, "These are the you know here here's the uh, risks of football. These are serious risks. Uh, I also enjoy football and, and believe that you know if you do football, uh, we would watch you like a hawk, but uh, it's something that." It's not a death sentence playing football or even getting a concussion or even getting a half dozen concussions in football. These aren't death sentences. Uh, and he let his kid make the decision. The kid ended up choosing soccer, which, by the way, especially with headers, uh, concussions are big issues in soccer, too, not nearly what it is in football. Uh, but I think that is ultimately what, if this discussion comes about in our family, that's what I would encourage my wife and our family to do is let's be honest about it and leave it ultimately up to the kid. I can hear my wife probably screaming at me from downstairs. <laughs> Not a chance. Not a chance for grave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounds familiar. Um, yeah. Right. Well, yeah, for another spin on this question, um, if miles Easter had another son, would he allow him to play football? Boy, that's, that is, I don't think so. I think with all this pain, uh, the answer would be like, what's, what's the point? Uh, but the, Zach's parents have very different feelings about football. Uh, they're, uh, one of their other boys is getting married. I think this weekend actually. Um, and you know, at some point grandchildren will come around and Brenda is as blunt as she could possibly be about this. My grandchildren will not play football. They can play golf or, track and field or basketball, whatever. They're not playing football, period. Um, Miles Easter has, I think, a more nuanced view of this. When he, he'll he say, man, I just can't watch football anymore, which isn't fully true. He still watches his Minnesota Vikings. Um, he still has some nostalgia for football. But he has nostalgia for an old form of football. And he looks at football and he says, I miss the days, sort of the days of innocence when we didn't know about this. I miss the rough and tumble football, that sport that created me as a man. Uh, today, he says it's too much of a track meet. Uh, they're just, it's all about speed and, and finesse and not enough about power and, and strength and, and, and toughening it out. That's complicated, right? Um, he, he, he sort of holds this old version of football very high in his head, despite knowing that his son was somewhat felled by, by, the culture surrounding that version of football. I think ultimately it's kind of like with me and my wife, uh, miles wouldn't have a choice in it because Brenda would be like, hell no. Uh, and I think when you go through something like this as a parent, it's just like not worth it. Uh, but his views are, are, I think nuanced and tortured and, and very reflective of, of any American football fan who thinks deeply about this sport. 
Absolutely. Thank you, Reed. Um, finally, uh, I want to step outside the realm of your book, sort of, um, and ask you, because we are a podcast that is presented by a bookstore, um, when I go to our sports section, I see a ton of classic books about baseball. I see a ton of classic books about basketball. But then when I think of books about football, I'm looking at your book. I'm looking at Friday Night Lights. There's a book coming out in a couple of weeks about Tom Brady getting divorced from Bill Belichick. Yeah, that's right. Um, but what other football books are out there that folks should consider uh, turning to? Yeah, by the way, that that uh, that Tom Brady book is written by a friend and one of my college classmates at University of Missouri, Seth Wickersham, who writes oh, for. He's he's such a good writer mm -hmm. and like one of the most sourced uh, people that I've come across. Nice. Um, so Jeff Perlman is, I think, an excellent uh, sports writer. Uh, who writes just very involved football books. He's written a, he's written a few. He wrote a book about the USFL. Yep. Uh, for those who don't know the USFL in the mid 80s, it was a start, sort of a startup league that tried to compete with the NFL. It's a brilliant book. It's so good. So much fun. Um, and by the way, uh, there was a certain uh, USFL team owner who uh you might have heard of um for the new jersey generals his mm. name's donald trump <laughs> um there's a ton of good good football books out there i think it's a little bit harder to write about than uh, uh than sports like you see john's fine scene writing about golf which is this like this mm. hyper mental sport baseball is this like it's easier to write about baseball because uh I just because it's it's so nostalgic. Um, football is is tortured. It's difficult. Uh, one of the books that was a primary source material, not primary source material, but it was a big uh, big source material in in my book was a book written by a guy named Michael McCambridge. Uh, it is called America's Game: The Epic Story of How Pro Football Captured a Nation. Earlier, I referred to sort of that moment when football passed baseball. Um, that moment was this game that he was writing about the 1958 championship game. And he was writing about this as sort of a seminal moment for football. Football is a sport that is uh, much better on television um, than it is in person. I think it is the perfect, like the pitch battle on television. Mm. And it's no coincidence that uh, when football really passed baseball in the 1950s was when televisions went from, Oh my gosh, the kid in the neighborhood has a, has a television in 1949. He's the most popular kid around. Can't believe you got a television. It's in 1960, everyone has televisions, right? Mm. Uh, completely transforms football. There's also, a, there are a ton of football memoirs and I hate them all. <laughs> I, 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 I have, I'm sure there's a great football memoir out there, but so many of these, uh, yeah, they they're just terrible. Uh, yeah. But uh, obviously, Friday Night Lights is one, and then Tim Green's written a bunch of, uh, I think a little bit like for for maybe younger crowds, but just a really uh, enjoyable uh, football writer. Yeah, those football memoirs do not tend to age. God, well. um, they're, ter they're terrible. Right? <laughs> 
Yeah, um, I do want to put in a plug here for a couple authors you mentioned. Um, if listeners, if you want to dive back into the archives of this podcast, um, I believe one of our very first episodes was with John Feinstein for his book Quarterback, and we also have an episode with uh, Jeff Perlman for his most recent book Three Ring Circus. Uh, oh, that book was so much fun! By the way, right? yeah, I, I, I read that book like uh, when, when COVID was at its worst and everyone's depressed, and it was. It, I felt like I was just escaped into like the Kobe Shaq drama, um, it, like this meaningless sports drama that was just a wonderful, wonderful escape. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you, Reed. And thank you for writing this wonderful book. I think it should be necessary reading for all fans and followers of American football listeners. I've been speaking with Reed Forgram, author of Love Zach, Small Town Football and the Life and Death of an American Boy, which is published by our friends at Algonquin. Reed, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much uh, for having me on, for, for spreading the story. Once again, I would like to thank Reed Forgrave for joining me. Copies of Love Zach, Small Town Football, Life and Death of an American Boy can be ordered at www.coilridgebooks.com for free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.